You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, a conversation about the future of technology with the CEO of Stability AI, the hype startup that has just launched a chatbot to rival ChatGPT. Then Tesla raises prices of some models in the US one day after CEO Elon Musk hinted at further price cuts. This as more shareholders flag concerns that Musk is stretched too thin. And Earth Day is coming up and we'll break down the pros, the cons of carbon capture technology as more companies pledge to offset emissions. But first, let's check in on what's happening in terms of public markets. Let's move it on because I wanted to show what was happening in terms of some of the benchmarks. I don't want to steal Ed's thunder as I think this is one of his individual stocks to watch. But we are seeing at the moment maybe completely flat on the Nasdaq overall. We're still trying to pass some of the overall... Uh, view on the macro perspective here. We actually had the PMI data, so business activity showing strength. So does that mean the Federal Reserve does have to hike? We are flat on the Nasdaq. The two-year yield just inches up four basis points. Has been far more volatile than some of the benchmarks in terms of stocks recently. I shine a light on crypto actually having its uh, downward week. We're off by 7% on the OG in the crypto space. Just off by 6 tenths of a percent on the day. Relatively muted volatility there. Let's move it on and have a little look on what's happening. Therefore, in, in really where we look towards earnings, Ed, because I think this is what is capturing traders' attention and why we're seeing some caution in the market. We have overall seen, well, perhaps, well, we'll move over into the micro. I think we can't get that particular chart right now, but I wanted to show just how much of the heavy lifting technology is done, particularly in the S&P in the first quarter, Ed. It's why we continue to track the news cycle, because you look at points movers on the Nasdaq 100. That is what is driving indexes in either direction right now. Amazon, as you said, I was quite excited about this because it's moving to the upside up more than 3%. The headline of the last 24 hours is that cuts are coming at the Whole Foods division, particularly in corporate roles. We know about where Amazon's been trimming and that those layoffs announced have started. But it's interesting that Whole Foods as well is seeing some of that action. Let's go back to Tesla. Tesla's actually turned the corner in terms of its 
its direction, its momentum in the last hour or so. We're higher by more than a percentage point, having been lower, markedly lower, actually, earlier in the session. The emphasis overnight is on price raises on Model S and X here in the United States. But we go back to earnings a couple of days ago. The emphasis from Elon Musk, more price cuts could come because this is a company, Caro, that is willing to sacrifice margin and profit to sustain that rate of growth that it's targeting 50% or so on an annual basis going forward. Yeah, and I think we're going to be diving much more into the individual moves and into Tesla in a moment. But first, let's talk about some of the geopolitics at play surrounding technology right now. President Biden, of course, has been saying that he's going to crack down even more on U.S. investment in key parts of China's economy, including in chips, AI, quantum computing. Bloomberg's Josh Wingrove covers this from D.C. And we sort of got hints, a great scoop coming from some of your team in Washington about the move before the G7 summit. How likely are we like to, to see allies actually agree with this? Well, the mood music isn't good right now that they're all going to join hands and proceed on this, but they might sort of give cover fire, if you will, and Biden kind of wants a coalition of the willing when it comes to sort of squeezing uh, China's, uh, these sort of key sectors and squeezing investment in China. So even if, for instance, Europe, Canada, Japan aren't enacting the same types of restrictions, if they give either an explicit or tacit blessing, it looks like we'll see the U.S. go ahead with this, uh, with this executive order. Now, this is our colleague Jenny Leonard reporting it. It will be sort of aimed at a few sectors, and it is preliminary. A, the order itself is still in the works. B, it would then lead to regulations, which take a long time, and, you know, the devil is in the details. So this is still very early stages, but what it looks like is the U.S. will proceed probably on its own right now, according to, to our colleagues reporting, uh, with a sort of blessing of its allies. And this, of course, will further uh, risk inflaming tensions between Beijing and Washington at a time where the sort of, the sort of you know, wrangling over these economic restrictions has really been on the upswing. Josh, the logic from the administration, whether it is semiconductor or artificial intelligence related, has been the concern that China would apply that technology for military or security purposes going against the security interests of the United States. In the chip sector, what's interesting is you kind of have Taiwan caught right in the middle here, TSMC. And that's actually an example where the United States has got allies on side, the Netherlands, Japan, in terms of curbing chip exports to China or through the Taiwan Strait. What, what is the latest there? Yeah, our colleagues are reporting that Taiwan is miffed a little bit, that the U.S. is sort of lumping Taiwan into its broader push, saying if, if effectively, look, if you're trying to reorient away from Taiwan as part of a reorientation away from China, then in, in a way you're kind of distancing yourself from Taiwan, which nominally the U.S. is looking to support more broadly. And of course, uh, on the question of if and when it would ever come to a question of military defense of, of Taiwan. So this is the kind of the really the big question. The U.S. is trying to really steer those supply chains away. And that's got people's backs up in Taiwan who are saying, look, you know, like we we're trying to be your friend here. Uh, maybe just uh, don't uh, don't don't lump us all in. Don't paint with the same uh, a big brush when it comes to dealing with these issues. So that is the tension that the U.S. is trying to do. Interestingly, in, our, in that story, they're, they're particularly peeved at the Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, who they think has been really uh, ringing the bell on this one. And Raimondo has said, look, the U.S. is not looking to make 100% of chips, for instance, in the U.S., but they need to make more. It's not just that question of spying, espionage, military capability. It's also simply a question of availability. They don't want to be left without these things.
Yeah, certainly the conversations I'm having around the world are about the concentration of supply chain in Asia, not necessarily bringing all onshoring 100% to this nation. Josh Wingrove out of DC, thank you so much. Look, another rival to OpenAI's ChatGPT has hit the market. Stability AI just launched Stable LM, a chatbot tool designed principally for researchers, but the model is already experiencing a couple of issues and answering simple prompts like, what is five plus five? by meandering into a meditation about square inches and feet. What does all of that mean? Well, Stability AI acknowledged that it's growing pains with this early technology. We've also reported here at Bloomberg the company raising funds at a $4 billion valuation, according to sources. Let's get to all of that with CEO Emad Mostak for more. Emad, welcome to the program. Caroline and I have been looking forward to speaking with you. This, this model, it's targeted at researchers, right? It's a little bit nascent. What is it you think researchers will do with it? So I think that you have two paradigms here. You have the proprietary models, uh, which includes uh, OpenAI, ChatGPT, Anthropic, Google, etc. And then you have the open paradigm, where people are taking these models, they're experimenting with them, and they're doing wonderful things. So last August, uh, we kind of collaborated and launched Stable Diffusion, this text-to-image model that drove Lenser and a lot of these avatar apps. It was four of the top 10 apps in the App Store. And the developer community there overtook Bitcoin and Ethereum in cumulative likes within two months, the 10 years of that. And it's become almost as popular as Linux now in terms of all these people working on it. So rather than basically take a gigantic model, put it out there and keep it secret, this approach instead is iterative. You start with a seed and then you build it up and the iteration feedback loop means it's going to get better and better live in front of people as the whole world comes and hacks on it, extends it, and it'll be super interesting to see what happens. Emad, you take us to an interesting place quite early, which is everyone focused on the kind of billions of parameters that OpenAI is using for its LLMs. Actually, a lot of what people are doing out there, the inputs are based on a few hundred million parameters at a lower scale, requiring less compute. There's still a question about guardrails, and I'm interested in what guardrails you put in place for stable LLM. So it was never our interest to build big models. This came from a lot of the labs wanting to build AGI. Generalized agents could do everything. So GPT-4 can pass the bar exam and GRE and GMAT and everything like that. It's an amazing piece of software. But these big models are like really talented grads that occasionally go off their meds. And they're fed junk food, the whole internet. Because nobody's done the work on what is the actual data you need optimally for these models. Mm. What data do you need to feed these models so you can use them inside Bloomberg or a hedge fund or a regulated industry so you have data transparency as well with these things? So the guardrails that we've put in place are trying to work with various parties. We've announced Amazon as a partner and many more is coming on setting standards around open models because they are essential for private data. We have done things like in our previous image model that we released, we offered opt-out, and we were the only company in the world to do that because we thought if artists don't want to be in the data sets, and we offered full transparency around that, allowed them to opt-out. And I think these things will be hugely important as you need standardization and industry self-regulation at the big company level, at the anthropic, open AI, cutting edge, big model level, and at the open level. And we are looking especially there at the open level. Um, that's why I kind of signed the FLI letter a few weeks ago because I think now is the time for self-regulation to take a pause and do this right. Yeah. Because it's going around the world incredibly quickly. Many will know Stability AI well because of, well, already the image, text to image that you've so put out there, stable diffusion. And you say you gave the opt out. 
but many it didn't stop some of the lawsuits coming your direction. How do you win hearts and minds of people that are worried about where the data is coming from and ultimately actually who owns it and who benefits from it? I think the way that you do this is you put it out in the open and have an open discussion around it. We're working with multiple governments now on helping them with national models as well with open data sets. I think we should move away from web crawls and these random things to having really high quality data that reflects the diversity of the world and is open and interpretable and auditable. And as I said, there's no regulated industry or government that can use a closed black box model. You need to have open models that come to the data that you own. So a lot of these companies these really talented grads that are these models effectively, you know, they're like hiring for McKinsey, whereas you want to hire your own and have that because you can't give away your private knowledge. But again, there's so many standards and questions that need to be done around this and we have to have those discussions now because the technology is literally going everywhere. You I said, think it will be the number one topic on earnings calls and then definitely every government policy within the next few months. Do you have confidence that either you can self-regulate or that some sort of multinational agreement can come to bear? I think it'll be both. I think that you've got regulation, you have legislation, and you're seeing legislation come to bear, like Italy banning ChatGPT, for example, and the EU looking at GDPR laws, whereas Japan has a very different regime and the UK has a different right. regime. One of the reasons I created Stability, I was a hedge fund manager before, so I used to be on Alex's show, um, <laughs> was to try and make an entity that could help organize this at scale across the open area even as there's other regulation in the cutting edge area with giant models and at the big company level as well. Imad, uh, Bloomberg's reported you're raising funds at a $4 billion valuation. Did you close that round? I can't talk about things like that. Uh, we're the only company in the world that can build any model of any type for anyone. Uh, so it's a very interesting time. How about Let revenue me, generation, go, go ahead, Karen. Imad? Talk to us I about how you make money. Uh, it's an open core model. So this is where I saw the arbitrage again, head fund manager passed. Uh, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to build a benchmark. We are the, one of the largest supporters of open source in the world, academia, others, because there's a big gap there uh, with our supercompute. And then we take that and build our stable series of models, other benchmark models that we build from scratch with the data sets. We have commercial partners that license it to have financial variants, insurance variants, healthcare variants, the language models, et cetera, and then national yes. variants of that. And then through partners such as Amazon with Bedrock, you can go on Amazon and take that to your data and fully own your own model. And you know, we share on the upside with our partners, our hyperscaler system integrators. And then for a series of companies that we'll announce soon, we're building them dedicated AI teams so they can keep on top of this. And that's an incredibly great business model because we offer stability at times yes. of immense kind of chaos because no one knows what's going to happen. Emad, you tweeted about AWS and Bedrock that was interesting. How much of a differentiator is it to, to partner with tech companies that have ML specialized silicon and are working to, to improve the compute part of this process? I think it's a huge differentiator because you're moving from the GPU age to the ASIC age, just like you saw with Bitcoin. So we work closely with Amazon on Inferentia 2, which is an amazing piece of silicon that can run these workloads much, much cheaper. And you'll see that being released and announced, and I think it's just on GA. The Bedrock service itself means that a company such as ours that's 18 months old, 180 people, we do so much. We do all these models of all the types of video models, code models, language models. We can instead leverage that infrastructure to take this to 100,000 companies at uh, SageMaker. And, you know, they can face Amazon instead of us because that's who they trust. And again, you want trust at a time like this. You want to have custom silicon that can run this incredibly cheaply. 
Now, you want standards around it. This is why our stable diffusion model was the first model on the Apple right. neural engine at the start of December. Yeah, and so the customization optimization is going to be key. But the key thing is distribution. Because so many people want this and no company can scale fast enough and in a trustworthy manner enough to be able to support those SLAs, etc. Stability AI CEO Emad Mustak. Great to have some time with you. We thank you for working us into your calendar. It's busy. We appreciate it. EV maker Tesla is raising the prices of its Model S and X in the United States. Comes after steep price cuts earlier this year, which took a toll on profits. And of course, it's had an impact weighing down the shares. It's just two days after Tesla lowered prices of some of its other models. We're tracking all the moves. Bloomberg Sean came with us from Austin. It, the narrative does not match the action, right, Sean? So tell us what we know about Model S and X in the US versus what Musk has been saying this week about strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing here is, you know, possibly a response to some of the, uh, you know, pressure on the company as far as all of these price cuts that they've been uh, sort of throwing at the Model Y and the Model 3. But also, I think it's important to remember that uh, the first quarter of this year was one of the lower quarters of, of deliveries for the Model S and X over the last year and a half or so, basically since Tesla relaunched the read sort of semi-redesigned version of each of those cars uh, about a year and a half ago. So this is, you know, that sort of almost works counterintuitively. Mm -hmm. You think they would want to cut prices to increase the demand on those cars. But I think this is them saying, hey, if our numbers are already kind of low on these cars, we might as well make back some of the margin here, even though it's obviously not going to make up, uh, you know, for all of the money that they're losing by cutting so drastically on the Model Y. Yeah, this is the where they've got to kind of square the circle. They have a very luxury end that actually is still way cheaper than it was at the start of the year, but they inch it up by two or three percent on the day but they're trying to keep the allure of that luxury number the x the s while at the same time making the threes and the y's just really mass scale here can they do that can they keep the allure of the higher end while still competing with renault and ford ultimately i mean i think that's what we're really going to see this year um and you know i think one of the things that's instructive when thinking about tesla is that some of these other companies that are looking to try to replicate their success in the luxury space, as far as the startups go, are actually really struggling. Mm. Lucid, Lucid Motors has spent the last couple of months talking about how uh, they're actually really having trouble creating demand and they're throwing more money into marketing uh, to try to find customers for their expensive cars. And I think Tesla's always been kind of content ever since the Model Y especially took off in popularity to let the S and X sort of be these sort of uh, you know high-end things that don't really put too far in volume. Uh, they've started selling versions of those um, in China, these newer versions. And so I think they're going to find some homes for it, but I don't think they really think of it as uh, as a big driver for them. And it just sort of remains this kind of like legacy halo thing that if you have the money, it's probably nice to have. But people seem content with the Model Y and the Model 3, and, and Tesla seems content to push volume on those models uh, and really just let that lead. Yeah. Shona Kane trying to weave the narrative for us, as I'm sure Elon Musk is trying to weave the sales as well. We thank you. In other Musk-related news, we've got to do it. Twitter stirring up all sorts of confusion after the social media platform removed those legacy check marks for verified accounts that aren't paying for its Twitter Blue program. Yet not everyone had to say goodbye to the blue checks. What is going on? Asia Counts joins us now right here in New York to talk us through it. And Asia, it... 
seemingly Elon is paying for some blue check marks himself. How does that make sense? Yeah, it's a really weird situation. So as you mentioned, legacy blue check marks went away on April 20th. That means celebrities, athletes, anyone that's sort of notable under the old verification process lost their check mark. And so Musk has been very vocal about saying people are going to have to pay for them, but then he decided to pay for a few celebrities. So LeBron James, William Shatner, and then Stephen King, because they had been sort of vocal about not wanting to pay for the check. So I guess he felt like he wanted to pay for them for some reason. Uh, Aisha, you know, I, I elected to subscribe to Twitter Blue. I did it the moment it was available in North America for functionality experience. I wanted to see what the edit button did. I wanted to see what the 1080 video quality was like. Longer form tweets is another new function. But the verification process is really at the core of this debate. What does it require for you to technically be verified on Twitter from this point on? Yeah, it's an interesting change from what it used to be in the past. Essentially, you have to pay for Twitter Blue. You have to subscribe, which is about $8 per month. And then you have to have a, a phone number. And then there's a few other requirements, like having a display photo and a name. But it's very, very simple. And users I've talked to said that they were verified within 24, 48 hours. So it, there's not really much that you have to go through. Asia counts. Ed? Yeah, Bloomberg's Asia Camps out of New York. Coming up, we've got to get back to that story on Lyft. The headlines rolling as the company announcing a restructuring plan. We'll have all of those details for you. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
Caroline Lift out with a statement confirming it is doing a restructuring plan which will include significantly lowering the size of its team, although it does not give a specific number. What jumps out at me, though, is that there's no change to its previously issued financial guidance. But look, this is in line with what we're seeing across industry, a cost-saving exercise. And interestingly, the CEO, the new CEO, only days into the role, saying they'll use those savings to invest in competitive pricing. This is about the competition, of course, they have so directly with Uber in the United States. But this is a large amount of people. They already, of course, under previous helm of the founders, had slashed about 700 jobs late last year. We understand, and this is Wall Street Journal reporting, they plans to cut 1,200 or more jobs. So that's, what, 30% of their entire employee base? Yeah, and I actually misspoke a little earlier. When CEO Risha came on the, the show for the first time a couple of weeks ago, he said the company is not for sale. Mm. He then went to an all-hands meeting and told staff, I'll tell you what I told Bloomberg, the company is not for sale. And that was something the market thought might happen. But yeah, he's clearly acting quickly to get the costs under control. He is, and it is a sign of the times, as we, of course, see the macro environment continuing to be tough for some of these technology-focused companies, a lot that did a lot of hiring during the pandemic. We've seen, of course, the continued layoffs that continue to be executed over at Meta, of course, this week. And this hits morale. I wonder how the CEO really tries to speak to that at this moment. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Carrie, let's get a check on these markets because you look at the NASDAQ 100, completely flat. But we're on course for a weekly decline of around seven-tenths of a percent. Earnings season starting to be a big factor, but we're still passing the economic data and what that means for the Fed going, before, uh, going forward. Underperformance in the chip space, look at the socks, we're softer by a percentage point. A little push higher on the 10-year yield, 3.5%. And as you talked about earlier, some downward pressure this Friday on Bitcoin of just under 28,000 US dollars per token. A lot in the news cycle is about artificial intelligence. We're going to go big on one story in just a moment. But you look at some of the specific movers on the Nasdaq 100 driving us in one direction or the other, putting us in that flat position. Microsoft, Alphabet, the parent company of Google. That's a real focus for us. Not big trading in, in one direction or the other. Bigger moves in some other AI names. C3 AI to the downside. Big Bear AI to the upside. What I would say is we've kind of lost this kind of broad momentum or logic when it comes to trading in AI-related stocks. Still fun to track, though. It is. And it's also fun to try and track what the companies are doing to harness some of the growth potential of this AI that they're using internally or seeing other companies try and compete away. I'm pleased to say in the house on this Friday is Bloomberg's Davey Alba, who has just reported on Alphabet's changes to combine its AI research units. I, basically under DeepMind, which was the big UK pinup. And when I was talking about technology over there in Europe, DeepMind was this big kind of loss when Google bought it. Mm-hmm. Interesting that it's taken so long to sort of put them underneath DeepMind. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, Google has had these separate units in two different places. Google Research on one side and the Brain unit under Google Research was responsible for a lot of the tech that is now in chatbots, like ChatGBT even, its competitor um, by OpenAI, and Google's Bard. Mm. So, so they've been innovating sort of in the Mountain View office while DeepMind has been in London and sort of working on loftier research concepts. Yeah. There's been lots of questions about um, how to consolidate those groups so that they can move forward more efficiently with their research. And that's, I think, what this reorganization does. 
David, also goes back to kind of the history of Google and AI, right? You go down to Mountain View 10 or so more years ago, you're kicking the hacky sack around. It's an extracurricular activity where like lots of different teams would get together and talk about machine learning, later AI. But actually, what they're doing now is, is getting some personnel changes as well. Some of the management are moving into more kind of research-focused roles. What are the details in that respect? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jeff Dean, who is this like legendary researcher at Google, is becoming chief scientist at the company. Um, and he is not managing people anymore. Um, you know, we've talked to sources inside Google who think that this is actually a good development, that he, you know, is focusing more on the research and he will work closely with Google DeepMind um, to just move the, the ball forward in terms of research. Um, and then, you know, Google's CEO of DeepMind is the one that is going to be ultimately in charge of this consolidated unit. So. Yeah. Demis, of course, Demis Hazabis. Yep, absolutely. What about the anxiety levels in Alphabet? Can you just give us a check-in of what they feel? We've seen Sundar Pichai on 60 Minutes. We've seen a lot of talk of trying to get back the narrative that you know AI is synonymous with Alphabet and Google, not just ChatGPT and OpenAI. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Google has for so long called itself an AI-first company. As Sundar Pichai took over as CEO, that was his sort of line mm. that he kept sort of hammering away at. And Google really has something to prove here. It's been scrambling to catch up to OpenAI and the innovations with ChatGPT and also its big competitor in Microsoft as they've integrated that tech into Bing. Um, the, that scramble has uh, come out with a code red, you know, under the company. And they're really just from the top down telling folks to hunker down and come out with these generative AI products. Um, so anxiety levels are absolutely high. Um, at the same time, you know, the, there are ethical questions about the tech that is being rolled out. And Google has a ton of brilliant researchers who are also concerned with these things. And yeah. there's that tension there. All right, Bloomberg's Davey Alba and all things Google, thank you. Let's continue with AI and our coverage, actually, of the Emerge Tech Conference out in Miami, Cara, and bring in Angel Bush, founder of Black Women in Artificial Intelligence. An interesting group, Angel. Let, let's start with Miami first. Why have you taken you, yourself and, and your firm out to, to Emerge this week? I am so excited to be here at Emerge because there are so many innovative things that are happening and you have so many subject matter experts here that you can connect with and really find out more information about what's happening in the industry and what's going to happen, the future of AI. Hey, Caro, I think, you know, for us, we're, we're trying to pass over some names, some leaders in a field of artificial intelligence, yeah. which everyone seems to be jumping on. Like all tech subsectors, we also consider diversity, right, and leadership in that space. And there's been a lot of anxiety, particularly around biases that get automatically built within some of the AI models if the right people aren't at the table, if the right inputs aren't being put in. And Angel, we want to go back to why you founded Black Women in AI. What event were you at where you saw that it wasn't speaking to you? Well, I was 
at an event, and I don't want to name the event, to be honest, um, but the purpose of the event was AI and technology. And I did not see a full representation of myself. And at that time, in 2019, they continued to say that artificial intelligence is the fourth industrial revolution. And again, I didn't see a representation of myself. And in those moments, I said, well, surely you can't have a revolution without black women. And that was the start of black women in AI. Well, Angel, what work are you doing? Uh, you know, what, what is it the function that, that black women in AI carries out each day? Well, our mission is to educate, engage, embrace, and empower black women. And we've partnered with another a number of companies to do just that by providing various initiatives that educate our community on AI. What is data science? And I know data science is not AI, but it's a close cousin. Uh, what is autonomous vehicles? What is machine learning? What is computer vision? Uh, what is AR and VR? We are learning these things, but we're also learning how to ace the case in essence when we're going to our interviews and things of that nature. So we're educating the entire process of AI from being a creator to being a consumer to being a part of the industry. So Angel, is it more about ensuring that people coming through education are being well-versed in AI and therefore able to join these companies that you partner with? Or is it more ensuring that people within these companies are having a voice, able to take leadership roles? What, what part of the stack are you looking at to a certain extent? It's a combination of both. We want our community to be engaged in AI because it affects all of us. AI is global. It's not something local. It's not a fad. It's going to be here and it is affecting all of us. It has an impact on our community. And I want to make sure that we're not only exposed to it, but again, we're not just consumers, but we're creators as well. So we're learning you know, how to be a part of the system in terms of AI in corporate America. But we're also learning how to be creators in this space as well. And in a way, Ed, this also speaks to, of course, it's about diversity of thought, diversity of background, but it also means that, therefore, the talent pools are so much richer and, and not just in Silicon Valley, not just in New York. They're in Miami, they're in Austin, they're in other parts of the United States, right? Yeah, I think, Angel, exactly. we're interested in who you're speaking to out in Miami this week. You yourself had a long career in the oil and gas industry. You've made the jump to AI. Are you seeing people make similar moves to kind of jump on the momentum in this sector? I am, actually. I'm seeing a lot of people. I know that the notion is that uh, women are leaving uh, technology and AI, but we're seeing the opposite. We're seeing people from across the globe. Again, we're, we have members located on five continents. So we're seeing women across the globe come back to tech who may not have been encouraged when they were younger, uh, who may not have thought that there was space for them. And we are providing that space. So again, they can learn, they can be educated and engaged embraced and empowered in this in this space, but also feel that they can succeed in this space. Again, whether they are creator or consumer, we want them to know everything they can know about artificial intelligence. Black Women in AI founder, Angel Bush, we appreciate you making the time while busy out there in Miami. Ed? Thank you. Yeah, thanks to Angel. Now, coming up, we're actually going to take a closer look at the Miami VC scene with Panoramic Ventures' Paul Judd, which is coming up next. A lot to talk about what's happening in the ground out at Emerge. This is Bloomberg.
everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. AI, you've heard of it. It's probably a thing that's going to uh, grow. And, you know, let's invest in that. So semiconductors, at a minimum... Um, and other software investments are probably going to be key. That was Kim Forrest, founder and CIO of Bokeh Capital Partners there. Let's go from the public markets, though, to the private markets and bring in Panoramic Ventures managing partner Paul Judge for his take on where he's looking for the next big thing. You're out there in Miami for Emerge, right? You split your time between Atlanta and down in Florida. Good hunting ground for a venture capitalist in Miami? It's, it's, it's been amazing. I've been you know, based in Atlanta for the last 20 years and always believed this view that you know, innovation is not just in the traditional tech hubs of, of the Valley. And we've done most of 85% of our investments have been in, in the Southeast and the Midwest. And two years ago, I started to spend my time in Miami and split because of just the growth of the tech ecosystem here. We've- the, the sound, sorry to interrupt you, Paul, the sound bite we just played from that, that public market investor was about the opportunity in AI and semiconductors. I'm interested, you know, which su- sections of the technology industry are most appealing? What's the good work that's going on out in Miami? You know, there's a, a few things that are happening. Uh, if you look at all the changes in finance right now, 
you know, decentralization with, with blockchain, but then also kind of the the shortage of, of capital that's flowing through the markets now, right? And then lastly, what happened with SVB and others, people are thinking about, you know, how do you have safety of your, of your treasury, but then how do you find uh, upside and where do you find alpha and where do you find returns? And so, you know, individuals as well as corporations are, are rethinking finance totally, right? And so even we just saw Apple uh, get into savings accounts. And so we're investors in another number of companies that are kind of rethinking finance. Uh, another big trend where we're spending a lot of time is, is cybersecurity. And it's an evolving landscape, right? We're always chasing the attackers as they're figuring out the next battleground to try to break into organizations. Uh, you know, a number of our investments are there. There's a company called Lumu that's a cybersecurity company based in Miami that helps you figure out, you know, you must assume that you have an attack on your network, but how do you identify it and how do you figure out what to then do next? Caroline, on Bloomberg Technology, you and I are trying to cover this industry globally. Mm. Look at what's happening, not just on the West Coast or the East Coast. But it is interesting to look at where the mega cap tech names are, where the biggest startups are. Does size matter? when it comes to, to momentum in the sector. And also, where does the value originate? And it's interesting, Paul, you talk about cyber, which feels like a space that's been more resilient to the macroeconomic headwinds because everyone still needs to protect themselves. AI seems to be managing to be a silver lining amid this dark cloud of where valuations head. From your perspective, where is some of the AI talent? Where is the stack? Is it interesting to be investing at the moment in terms of AI? Absolutely. AI is allowing uh, computers, we've always been chasing how to have computers think like humans and, and, and operate faster. We knew computers always had more storage than, than humans, always had faster compute. Uh, but given it ability to learn and, and make you know deeper logical decisions and you know what we're seeing with these language models now is really becoming more of an on-ramp to technology. It used to be to get into technology, you had to program uh, cards and put, give them to a computer. You had to learn COBOL and there's all of these barriers. Now that you can just talk to a computer in normal language and have no code and, and create websites and create software uh, is opening up the playing field to a lot of people that have been underrepresented, uh, a lot of people that have been overlooked. And so I think we'll see even more of an emergence of kind of remote locations as people on board through, through AI. And then it's allowing us to disrupt some traditional, uh, I would call them boring industries, mm-hmm. right? There's companies that we've invested in, like Togo, who won the pitch competition here last year, that's taken a, a traditional boring industry of construction and applying software to it to help it be more efficient. We'll see more of that AI to go into uh, traditional industries and helping them move faster and be more efficient. Productivity is what it's all about, Paul. You yourself, seasoned founder, and then now into the world of investing, ensuring that it's more democratized. Are you seeing the amount of founders you want to see from diverse backgrounds? Do you think at the moment with the macro headwinds as they are, they're more enticed to go out there, build their own company or not? I believe that, you know, there's always been this desire with minorities to, to be entrepreneurial, right, uh, to, to carve out their own path. And you, you've seen the numbers. Traditionally, the tech industry, unfortunately, was based on a closed network. It was based on who do you know. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't very inviting if you're coming from a different background, if you're coming from a different geographic region. Uh, one of the things that is a benefit of how the world is very distributed now is investors have to hop on a plane and hop on Zoom. 
And I think we're seeing enough examples of great companies uh, founded by women and founded by minorities that uh, investors are now seeking them out. The numbers still have so much further left to go, right? At, at Panoramic, you know, over half of our portfolio is founded by women or founded by minorities. Uh, we also partner with SoftBank on the Opportunity Fund, mm. which is a billion dollar fund dedicated to Latino and black founders. Right. Yeah, that was a key player, certainly in bridging the gap between America, Latin America in particular. Panoramic Ventures managing partner, Paul Judge, what a great person to have on today. We thank you. And Ed, it really is just this focus on ensuring that we're looking at these pools of capital that are being built by right. diverse VCs and, uh, and attracting diverse founders. What he set out was really important. The history of Silicon Valley was you had Stanford, you had the talent, they founded companies and the VCs moved to them. What he's just explained is why the capital is going to Miami, because of what's there and the diversity of foundership that's on offer. Really interesting. Time. It's running out to avoid the worst effects of climate change. That's according to a research note published just yesterday by the International Energy Agency, the IEA, which outlines that after a short drop during the pandemic, global carbon dioxide emissions, they rose to a new record high of 36.8 billion metric tonnes in 2022. And yet, Clean energy is becoming more and more affordable and could potentially lower global warming, according to the same report. For more on this, let's talk about the future of clean tech, carbon capture in particular. Let's bring in Claude Letourneau. He's president and CEO of carbon capture company Sfante. It's just got $50 million investment from United Airlines. Also scored the biggest carbon and emissions tech deal of 2022, $380 million Series E. It was around led by Chevron Technology Ventures. Claude, it's wonderful to have some time with you as we look towards Earth Day coming up tomorrow. Just how do you see deals with United? How do you see more private market money allocation coming to solve what is a very public need? I think, we, I think we lost Claude, which is a shame. I'll go back to something I discussed the other day at Techonomy Climate, and mm. I did the panel. And the point is that if you're a venture capitalist, right, you want to be investing in startups that can get the money, the dollars, from A, the government, yeah. and B, those energy companies that have to diversify. And yes. I think, Carrie, we asked our own audience that exact question, right? Yes, let's go to what we put out to Twitter because it got people engaged. With, this is a global problem. It's also one that we all consider on social media an awful lot. And really the view was, is research in particular, is the time running out for the worst effects of climate change? And we don't want to politicize this, but actually like 35% said no, no support is actually needed in terms of government focus, VC focus. Right. Yes, we're on the right track, says 11%. So that felt to me a little bit pessimistic. Only 11% out there think that we're on the right track in terms of funding for clean tech companies. But actually the large amount think that no more support is needed, does that mean they just think that enough is there already and the private sector can solve this? I'm thinking about Bill Gates as an example. How long has he been talking about the need to focus on climate? But one of the initiatives that he's doing out of Washington State in Seattle mm. is to make it commercially attractive. Yes. Invest in things that make people money so they're incentivised to get into that space. Well, therein lies the it? argument of impact investing, isn't it? This isn't about doing things without profit. It's about doing things for profit. And actually, look, talking about profit, there are some companies out there having to make some very difficult decisions right now. Yeah, let's get back to Lyft and look at shares of the company. Actually, really interesting move. You know, basically flat now, having spiked as much as 5%. Issued a statement confirming a restructuring plan, Caro. They will reduce headcount, but that's after the journal had reported 1,200 jobs to be cut. They didn't give that number, but the key point, I think, 
there will be no impact to the prior financial guidance that they gave, now negative a tenth of a percent. This is all about competition as well, isn't it? They're talking about the need to use those cost savings for basically competitive pricing, for savings for you and I when we take a lift. Now, that's going to yes. be probably quite difficult for the people who are about to lose their roles to swallow. But this is about continuing to ensure that they can take Uber on here in the United States. But this is all about morale. How can a new CEO to the business be able to steady a ship when also having to make such yes. drastic cuts? And when we spoke to the CEO a few weeks ago, he said the company is not for sale. Mm. But clearly he's putting his stamp on this company having just joined. Meanwhile, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology, yeah. Yeah, but stick with us. Twitter spaces, Caro. Coming up four minutes time. What a week it has been. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.